This is The Book Show on RTE Radio 1. I'm Ethna Shortall and I'm interested in looking at love as a subject within novels because of how tricky it can be to get right. Many of literature's great stories are love stories, so how do contemporary authors write about it in a way that is both fresh and true? And how do we avoid falling into cliché? There can also be a view that love stories are lesser stories, even though love, I would argue, is the greatest motivation any person or any character can have to do just about anything. I'm excited to talk to other novelists about how they approach the task of writing about love, be it romantic, sexual or parental. First, we went along to Debray Books on Grafton Street in Dublin to ask manager Mairead Gallagher what books about love people are buying. Guess How Much I Love You by Sam McBratney, The Fault in Our Stars by John Green, Me Before You by Jojo Moyes, Tin Man by Sarah Winman, Time Traveller's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger. My name's Murray Gallagher, I'm the manager at Dubray Books on Grafton Street, and with Run Up to Christmas, we're looking at books with the theme of love that would make a perfect gift. A little bit of me and a whole lot of you Add a dash of starlight and a dozen roses too Then let it rise for a hundred years or two And that's a recipe for making love One of the non-fiction books that came out this year that is just a really good story is Everything I Know About Love by Dolly Alderton. She's a UK journalist and she looks at love over her life. So she's in her 30s now and she looks back at the different stories of like what love means when she was a teenager and then in her 20s. She tells these short narratives and they're really funny. Some of them are just so self-deprecating that, you know, you you just want to give her a big hug at the end of it but they're just really good selection of stories The Tattooist of Auschwitz by Heather Morris Call Me By Your Name by Andre Asiman Everything I Know About Love by Dolly Alderton Tin Man is a multiple award-winning book. It's by Sarah Winman. It looks at friendship and love and it follows two boys who meet when they're 12 and their life together through college, through their adulthood and what it means to fall in love and what it means to have a loving friendship. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte and Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Yeah, I think books are personal and that people like to read stories about love but you know not necessarily that it all works out I mean there are so many different aspects to love I suppose there are people like Danielle Steele who are always going to have a happy ever after people I suppose really want to tease out love and you know somebody like Donald Ryan he can show how cruel we are to each other um, in love and that you know sometimes we have the worst word in our belly for the person that we love because we ultimately believe that they understand us and they will forgive us so there are so many different books on the theme of love Mairead Gallagher there from Debray Books on Grafton Street. I'm joined this evening by three authors who have written about different kinds of love within different genres. David Park's latest novel, Travelling in a Strange Land, sees a middle-aged father travelling from Belfast to Sunderland during a snowstorm to bring home his ill son. Hazel Gaynor's latest novel, The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, tells the story of Grace Darling, a real-life heroine of the sea, And finally, Abby Green, who has been writing sexy, passionate books for Mills and Boone for a decade. Her latest is An Innocent, A Seduction, A Secret. So let's start with Hazel. Hazel, uh, to date you've been writing historical fiction and in some of your earlier books, um, I'm thinking particularly of The Girl from the Savoy, you've dealt with romantic relationships. In the age of Tinder and online dating, do you have to 
shift how you think about love when you're writing about how it happened 100, 200 years ago? Well, that's what I love about writing historical fiction because I'm I'm really guided when I'm writing my novels and, and recreating, reimagining those um, people and places from the past. We have history to, to tell us as a record of how people fell in love. And, and obviously, you know, 100, 200 years ago, there were very different conventions around romantic love. So it was difficult for people to fall in love. You know, there were a lot of inhibitions. There were a lot of um, things that young women and young men couldn't do. So, for example, they might have had a chaperone when they were trying to meet someone. There was very different ways of expressing your love. So, you know, the Victorians would often express love through the language of flowers. We would have fans being fluttered to let somebody know if they were available or single. So there's really fascinating ways. And, And obviously the written word until very recent times, was how people communicated. Like love letters. Absolutely, love Mm. letters. I've written a whole book of love letters set through the uh, four years of the First World War. That was last Christmas in Paris. So I love that sort of slow build, the gentle way that people previously fell in love before the era of smartphones and Snapchat and Tinder and and what have you. In The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, you have real life character Grace Darling, um, this woman whose first love is her job. Can you tell us? She's a real character. So can you tell us about her? Yeah, Grace Darling um, was a lighthouse keeper's daughter um, on the Longstone Lighthouse off the Farne Islands off the coast of Northumberland. And in 1838, she and her father saved survivors of a shipwreck and she became incredibly famous throughout the British Isles, much to her horror, really. She, she was a very private individual. Um, and what I th- explore, really, in The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter is the theme of duty over desire. So Grace's, as you say, responsibility really was to her daughter, to the lighthouse. Lighthouse keeping was very much a, a generational job. It was a position of great responsibility and respect. And she did. It, it, it is alleged that she fell in love with an artist, a local artist, who travelled to the lighthouse to capture her portrait through her fame. And this is George Emerson. Yeah, yes. that's George Emerson in my book. Now, there was a George Emerson. We don't know if that was the George that okay. she allegedly fell in love with. So I've taken the known facts and I've reimagined what that must have been like for a young girl. She was only 22 when she became this sort of household name. And you're going to read a section from the book for us where we, this will-they-won't-they relationship with the visiting artist George Emerson. He has just been saved by Grace Darling and he starts to realise his feelings for her. We mustn't forget the brave people who came to our rescue. We must never forget her name. Whose name? The woman who saved me, Grace Darling. The fire crackles and spits, shooting an ember onto the hearthrug. George stoops to pick it up with the fire irons, tossing it back into the grate. The rug smoulders, a scorch mark seared forever into the weave of the wool. And in a moment of clarity, George realises that is precisely what Miss Darling has done to him. Despite the brevity of their interaction, despite his betrothal to Eliza Cavendish, despite none of it making any sense whatsoever, Grace Darling has seared herself into the fibre of his soul. And no more than he can easily remove the scar from the hearthrug, neither can he easily remove the memory of her from his heart. Thank you, Hazel. In that, okay, so Grace is real. We know there was some artist, but you Mm. have obviously fabricated this relationship for her. Mm. Do you feel a responsibility? I mean, Grace is long dead, but because she once lived. Absolutely. I mean, whenever you're going back to real people and I've I've covered either real events like the sinking of the Titanic and the girl who came home or real people like Grace Darling 
in The Lighthousekeeper's Daughter, and you do feel a great responsibility to honour their legacy. You know, historical fiction is the novelist's interpretation of actual events. So you do have the known facts that, you, that you're that you working with. It's like you have a structure in and around which you create your own character. And you're, but you're going into her head in such an intimate mm. way to think, how does she feel about this man? And that's what I love because, you know, we often look at history. We have very black and white photographs. We have very sort of um, straight accounts of the historical record. That's what history is. What historical fiction allows me to do as a novelist is is colorize that black and white world and add human emotion, add thoughts and feelings. And and at the end of the day, Grace was a young woman with thoughts and feelings. And, and you know, there she was really stuck in her time, but still had this desire with this with this man and she loved and loves Evergreen. You know, it doesn't matter whether that was 200 years ago or today. Those feelings are very, very relatable to us now. Um, OK, and to David Park, your, your latest novel, uh, Travelling in a Strange Land, the protagonist, Tom, is driving through this great snowstorm to rescue his son and obviously spurred on by the love for his son who is ill. But there's also this obligation and love to his wife at home and I'm always interested in that like I would find that very difficult writing about married love I do find it hard because it's not the beginning or the end The happiness that can be found in love I think is a very unattractive subject for a writer Yeah It's very difficult to spark into meaningful life and if we're totally honest about it human nature is not really interested in other people's happiness so what we are interested in largely is the struggle to define love, the dysfunctional nature of love, um, the madness it might engender, infatuation, unrequited love, infidelity. These are the things that um, people tend to be interested in in love as opposed to some happy ever after romance. Um, And love itself, I think, is a very, very private thing. Mm. And it's very, very difficult to put that on a page and to to hold the reader's uh, attention. I find myself more drawn to writing about love in a family context um, and writing about parents and children. I think it's a very profound experience um, to have children and uh, sometimes in Travelling in a Strange Land, as you said, it's about a father and his relationship with two sons. And do you think that that is... From as a writer, that that's the greatest kind of love you can be writing about because it's unconditional. So it can be the motivation to do absolutely anything. I think it is unconditional love. In the book, um, the father is bringing, trying to bring home his sick son from university at Christmas, but he also feels an enormous guilt about what has happened to his other son. And this journey becomes a kind of a pilgrimage, a, an act of atonement mm-hmm. in his head for what has happened. Okay, you're going to read a section from the book for us and in this we get a sense of Tom's love for his son. Luke was never much into drinking, got himself bladdered the night his GCSE exams finished. That was about the sum total of his teenage excess, at least as far as we know. One of his friends called me on Luke's phone and I went to collect him at the lockback gates of a local park. Propped up by his friend who at least had the good grace to call and not do a runner a surf of empty WKD bottles round their feet and from somewhere deeper in the park loud shouts and sounds of revelry. Getting him over the gate was one of the most physically difficult things I've ever had to do with Luke. Getting him over a high and locked metal gate. Put your foot there, Luke. Pushing and hauling. I'd never touched my son so much since he was a child and remember how strange it felt. We got off light with Luke. 
I know that now. And perhaps as a kind of apology for the drinking night, he turned up at the studio on results day with his list of successes. I didn't hug him because we don't really go in for that and probably haven't touched him since that night at the lock gate. But I did something that, if anything, felt more intimate. I took his picture, sat on a stool, the piece of paper in his hand. I took my son's portrait. And as I looked at him through the lens, I remember that I didn't want the moment to end, didn't want to press the button, just wanted to hold the moment there with him looking happy and me feeling proud and wanting to say something but not knowing exactly what it was or how to say it. So instead I took a mite and we had a subway. That reminds me of my dad. Uh, and when I read it, I thought that um, I fell off my bike and broke my arm and leg and my mum gave me a hug and was really nice to me and my dad went out and fixed my bike. You know, <laughs> you do the practical thing too. <laughs> yes. That's the difference. It's, it's, not a, it's not a universal now, to be fair. It's not a universal uh, attribution of role, but sometimes it can be like that, yes. And, and children, sons and fathers, sometimes find it hard to share feelings. I find with um, my own son that our points, we find points of connection in music and sport, and that's where we come together most easily. There's something so intimate about writing about family. You know, you have your own family. Uh, are you wary on that, on, on how much you draw from them or or that they might think you've drawn from them? I explained to my son that there would be some things in the book that he would recognise, but I also explained that the book was not about him and he understood that and there is nothing in the book that would I would never embarrass my children. It's actually the first book of mine. I've written 11 books. It's the first book my son has actually read. <laughs> because he was paranoid. <laughs> he was a little paranoid, but also because he was in work one day and the whole IT system went down and no computers were working. And he was at a desk and with nothing to do and he read the book and then came round to the house and told me. Right, what a compliment. I had mm. nothing else to do. <laughs> um, Abby, you've been writing for, uh, for Mills and Boone for... Is it 10 years? About 12 years. 12 years. And I'm fascinated by it, as most people are. How did you get into it? I They were always on my radar because I read them ever since I was a teenager when I found one. And um, I lived with a girl, a friend of mine, who loved them as well. And she told me about submitting to them. So that's how I got it into my head that you could submit to them. And they're one of the few publishers that you don't have to have an agent for. So you can go, you can submit straight to them. So that's how I did it really I just had it in my head and I sat down and started writing one day and the idea we have of them uh, like this uh, the stereotype of you know tanned Greek love gods and wide-eyed virgins is that true still is that how they are how the love stories are depicted in Mills and Boone they're still they're definitely the ones that I would write for the modern romance line are very contemporary and they're that really aspirational fantasy romance and you have the the, the alpha male um, hero and the heroine but je- no it's it's changed a lot I mean that would have been I think that would be more a real 70s kind mm, of yeah. type of Mills and Boone um, and they've definitely changed over the years so you've got much more of an equal balance now and you know certainly the line that I write for is one particular line and then they have so many other lines with different types of you know less alpha male heroes and medical romances are still really big so they literally have everything for everyone. I remember looking once at the kind of subgenres and like there's Amish you can get Amish which is like no one kisses and there's yeah. like motorcycle is a whole subgenre. Paranormal romance yeah and LGBT is huge um, 
gay romance is really big. Uh, it, there's everything. I mean, they, romance is such a huge genre now and they literally provide something for everyone. They used to be thought of as very platonic, but do they yeah. do sex now? Well, the, there was always... There was always this kind of misconception that Mills and Main shut the door on um, sex, and but they've actually always had sexy books within the, over the years, like from the thirties and forties and fifties. Um, they've got a lot sexier, and there's a new line out called Dare, which is their really hot, sexy line, which you can get. You can download as ebooks. Um, the line that I write for would be quite sexy, but I don't necessarily have to say put a sex scene into my, into one of my books. Okay. Like, if I don't want to, and if it doesn't work for the story, mm-hmm. I don't have to. But I I have yet to write a sex scene. I'm, I'm trying at the moment and failing and find it difficult. How do you write several and keep it interesting and different for yourself, but also for the for the readers? Well, I think with sex scenes, they're they're an action scene. You know, essentially, yes, if okay, you think about I can it, see that. Yeah. Um, and they move the, they should move the story. Like by the end of a sex scene, you've either the story's moved on or it's moved back because in life, if you if the emotions are engaged and if you're creating characters that are well developed and three dimensional characters, then they will make it a unique experience. So that help kind of make it feel like you're not writing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Because um, characters, everybody's different and everybody experiences things in different ways. Have either of you, David or Hazel, have you written sex scenes? I think that the shadow of the bad sex award falls across the consciousness. Did Morrissey win that last year or uh, something? I think he probably <laughs> yeah. did. That that falls across the consciousness of every writer, I think. I think I would wear that as a badge of honour. <laughs> like some really good people have won the won bad the sex award. No, award. if you've read the um, shortlist for the Bad Sex Award, you really, really would not want to be on that shortlist. Yeah, some of them are, I mean, yeah. you feel uncomfortable reading them and you just think physically that's not a good thing yeah. to be happening. You know, sometimes you read a book and you think, oh, that's going to be nominated this year. You know, like you're just like that. I has haven't, to be I it. haven't written um, mine books. I always say are very much one shade of grey. If if fifty is the is the bar, um, and it's not that I ever, when I started writing, it's not that I discounted it or you know didn't didn't want to. It's just I felt, and probably because of the historical settings, that um, it just didn't feel authentic in the scenarios that my characters. Were because in. there was less sex. Or? No, I don't think there was less sex. I mean, actually, a lot of the, the the love in my books has come out of tragedy. So, for example, there's a a love story that that indirectly comes out of the sinking of the Titanic. Then we have, as I said, the love story that's set through the Great War, and those two characters were not together. One was at the home front, yes, one was okay. at the western front. So, sex just wasn't an option for them. Interestingly, the book I'm writing uh, next, co-writing with Heather Webb again, which is inspired by the wedding of Grace Kelly to Prince Rainier of Monaco um, and it isn't them but our fictional characters do have a sex scene and actually that was quite fun for me to write with someone else as my first kind of foray into it um, Okay, yeah. and Heather's a little bit more um, I think she's written more sex scenes so that it was kind of great fun to bounce ideas and laugh about it almost and you know just so, But have you written one David? Um, well I couldn't even consider writing one while my mother was still alive <laughs> um, and I do it um, very unenthusiastically and lightly. Okay. Um, I'm not. It's hard to write it without feeling a bit like a voyeur, mm. and the wrong image, the wrong word, completely sends it spinning mm-hmm. into areas you don't want to be in. Um, I've not. I don't have a problem about having sexual content in a book, of course. 
and I think on occasion I probably have likely included some, but um, mm. it's not something I um, particularly enjoy. I think some of the most powerful sex scenes can be actually what's left off the page as well, you know, yeah. that's left in, t- in the reader's imagination. And I, I think, you know, certainly when I'm reading books, it's often more... Um, Powerful. Well, you see that when, in films where they fade out absolutely. and then they fade yeah. back in the next yes, morning. Exactly. <laughs> they're um, waking up in tussle sheets. There's yeah. also, as I uh, sort of touch on with David, there's an intimacy in writing about love, sex scenes, but also just writing about love um, of any kind with people. When you have family and relationships around you, have you had that experience where people think the book is about them or worried that they will think this? I don't really have to worry about that so much because... Uh, I don't know that many Greek alpha male billionaires. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't, obviously, you know, the, a lot of the books are, are, are clearly not um, people are around me now, but sub-characters certainly um, people have said, was that, was that a nod to a great aunt? And they have definitely, I've used family members, either their names or their characterisation, you know, their, their personality to help. Um, it's little Easter eggs that I leave in the book for people to find. David said earlier, which I I think can be true, where it can be a bit dull when everything is going, relationships are going very well, you know, and people, what we, our human nature wants things to implode, but not always. And I would presume then that, um, Abby, a lot of people when they're reading Mills and Boone, is there a contract where they want a happy ever after? That's what they've come here for. Yeah, absolutely. In any genre, I think crime, romance, anything like that, readers are picking up a book expecting a certain experience and they want that experience to be delivered, you know. Um, And the happy ever after ending is a staple of romance. And that's why people read romance, generally women. Um, And if you don't deliver that, then the reader is going to be annoyed. You know, if I pick, I love uh, Lee Child and the Jack Reacher books and I expect an experience to be delivered when I read that book. And if that doesn't happen, I'm going to be disappointed. Just to to add to that, there was a a book club chat. It was a group coming out of the States, um, a romance book club. And there was a big thread where one of the participants of the book club was really, really, really frustrated because their author that they love had killed off their, one of their heroes from a series and she actually she said, I'm, I'm just never reading her ever again because she wanted the happy ever after. Yeah, and I think it's funny. I think a lot there's some authors out there who won't call themselves romance authors, but essentially they're writing romance. But what happens is they write a more, say, a tragic ending. Yeah. And then they kind of, oh, that's their little get-out clause for <laughs> staying out of the romance genre. Yeah. You know? To be fair, though, if, uh, Romeo and Juliet, which is probably the absolute epitome of a story of romance, yeah. is intensely boring at the start when Romeo was mooning round about, you know... And it, it's it's only the star-crossed aspect and the tragedy that makes Romeo and Juliet what it is. So Yeah, Nora Roberts, she's a very well-known yes. American author and she says that's not a romance, that's a tragedy. It's two, yeah. two silly kids too messing about, <laughs> committing suicide and it's not a romance. <laughs> OK, um, there is also the trick, uh, the very difficult trick of writing about love when, like, as I said at the beginning, when so many stories of love have been written that you don't fall into cliché. Do you find that do you come up against do you see yourself writing things that are cliched I think you're always aware of, of of cliche and you know certainly in first drafts you you have to allow some of that to come in and that will get edited out in revisions um, once you've got the story down but I think as as Abby said each character 
is unique. You know, that's that's what the reader wants on the page is is a compelling character with a you know with a distinct voice. So they I'm not a huge plotter. I don't plot all my books out before I start writing. So I'm very much driven by the characters they develop. So I'd always hope to write an authentic scene whatever that is, whether it's unrequited love or mother-daughter love or parental or whatever sort of love, that feels right for who they are. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you're always very aware of falling into I, I think tropes. love and cliché are polar opposites. And I have a terrible memory of having my breakfast in a Dublin hotel and the man at the table, which was quite close to mine, suddenly got down on his knee to propose to the woman on the other side of the table and really all I wanted was my cornflakes at that (laughs) particular moment. I think, you know, it doesn't matter if you're writing about love, it doesn't matter what you're writing about, you're desperately trying to avoid cliché. You're Mm. desperately trying to write in a fresh way and see the world as it is, not as you would like it to be. Um, so that I mean that is a fundamental about all, all writing but saying I love you like those three words and people say them and they mean everything but you know billions of people have said them yeah, before it's, it's useless my wife says that she loves me but the phrase that she uses is she says you're a waste of space so <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I know <laughs> I know and the way she says that what that means but the the words I love you really yeah. On the page, I think, carry little, if nothing. Yeah. Uh, both my books have had love stories in them to some degree. And just writing I love you, it's just, I find that so hard to do, mm. to make it mean anything. And yet it happens in real life all, all the, the time. time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. I was going to say, I think it, you can almost overthink it sometimes and try and be too clever or too original. And you can feel the writer on the page or actually what really would happen is somebody just saying, I love you, please don't go. I think think what's important here is that we're each working in a particular context and we understand what are the expectations of the people who read uh, the the type of book we write and we're conscious of that and we're working with that in our our minds. Well, that was the idea of this panel to get people that are all writing for different audiences, different kinds of books and how you deal with the same subject. And I will just end on asking... What is the great love story or the great story with a love within it? Well, I would always revert to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. I just think it's it's an amazing uh, piece of, of literature. Um, the romance is amazing. The reader, I married him, is just a beautiful line. I think that's one of literature's greatest declarations of love. It really is, yeah. Him. So I'd yeah. find it hard to top Jane Eyre. Abby, have you got one? Uh, yeah, I think I love Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. Um, it's become huge now because it's been turned into this TV series, but she's written these eight, nine books and they're all about the same couple, Jamie Fraser, Claire Fraser. They're absolutely fantastic. Okay, right, one, yeah. on the list. And David... It has to be the great Gatsby. The narrator says about Gatsby, he had an incredible gift for hope, romantic readiness that I have never found in any other. And he builds his whole life on that dream of love and that incredible belief that you can repeat the past. And on that swoony note, I will leave it. So thank you to all my guests. Uh, David Park's Travelling in a Strange Land is published by Bloomsbury. Hazel Gaynor's The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter is published by Harper Collins. And Abby Green's An Innocent, A Seduction, A Secret is published by Mills and Boone. You've been listening to me, Ethna Shortall, and the series producer is Zoe Cummins. <laughs>